people. Hello and welcome to episode 172 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi and I'm joined by my co-host, the amazing Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. Hey Kai, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I am fantastic. A lot of news to cover today as always. Let's dive in. It never ends. It never ends. So good to have you over. Uh, today's show is a new show and a pretty big one. Let's take a look at our stories and dive right in. So we're going to cover the White House release of the Comprehensive Framework for Crypto Regulation and Development. We're also going to cover the Korean crypto bank that inked a deal to offer Ethereum staking to investors. And Starbucks, who tapped Polygon for its Starbucks Odyssey Web3 experience. And to dig into this, we're also joined by some fantastic guests making a debut on the show. Amanda Cassett, co-founder and CEO of Serotonin. How are you doing today, Amanda? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing wonderfully. Appreciate being here. Lovely. Lovely to have you. And another Blockchain Insider debut, Dante DiSparte, Chief Strategy Officer, Head of Global Policy at Circle. Welcome to the show, Dante. How are you doing today? Thank you, Mauricio. I feel like I've arrived um, now that I'm on this broadcast, so it's great to be with you and Kai. <laughs> Awesome. So before we dive in, just as a reminder, listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. Let's get started. Uh, we're going to cover now the White House release of the Comprehensive Framework for Crypto Regulation and Development. So the White House released this first ever comprehensive framework for responsible development of digital assets. It outlines the conclusions and recommendations of various federal agencies after six months of studying the crypto uh, industry. The concerns are wide ranging and the recommendations include not just the obvious, such as consumer protections, environment and national security, but also go a step further to consolidate the U.S.'s role as a global crypto frontrunner by encouraging private sector innovation in cooperation on an international uh, level. So just to start with this, I'm going to throw this to you, Dante. Uh, what, is, what is your overall perception or understanding of this responsible framework? We all want to be responsible. We all want this industry to be mature. Uh, is this a direct... Uh, recommendation to some of these shady players that we see in this space right now. What is your take, you know, uh, in, in, in summary for all of this? Yeah, I mean, well, for one, any industry that is big enough or important enough to be regulated at the whole of government level, which is part of what the White House executive order is all about. Um, on the one hand, you could argue the industry has arrived. And so gone are the days where everybody listening has to remain a shadowy super coder on the internet. Um, you could now argue that uh, the world's largest economy and this executive order start to signal um, the use of blockchain infrastructure and Web3 technology as a part of economic competitiveness in the United States. Having said that, there, there are, of course, many different reports, and each report takes on the tone and tenor and temperament of the respective agency that wrote it. And so my one criticism of the reports overall is that they feel a little time-stamped and heavily uh, tainted, frankly, by risk, as opposed to 
uh, marked by opportunity. Um, and, and you could feel that a little bit in the sense that they were probably written or at least in draft form right around when Terra collapsed and right around, you know, sort of crypto's darkest and coldest winter yet. Uh, but nonetheless, um, in those reports, and particularly the Department of Commerce report, you could see a very, very clear undercurrent of starting to figure out what this technology can represent and how it's a part of the U.S. economic competitiveness story. Yeah, no, I, I, f I felt that it, was, it came out as a little bit risk averse as well. And I think the timeliness also helped, the context helped with that. But I, I agree with you that we're still in uh, dire urgency to see the opportunity coming off of regulators and encouraging innovation in ways that we haven't seen yet. Amanda, what's your take on it? Do you, do you feel the same that this balance on these reports are uh, kind of risk-driven? And what would be the angle that regulators would come to entertain to kind of foster innovation in the markets that they regulate? Yeah, so my take on the, um, the recommendations is that they were extremely general and high level. It was, you know, the SEC should regulate stuff in the department of the SEC. The CFTC should regulate the things under the uh, mandate of the CFTC. Let's all uh, make sure that we're thinking about the environment. Let's make sure we're protecting consumers. I'm not really aware of anyone um, in the industry that changed what they were doing in any way um, or felt informed um, by this report. Um, so I, I'm not really sure what it did other than, as Dante said, an acknowledgement that we've arrived and that this movement is at a scale where it, it deserves that kind of um, you know, holistic acknowledgement, really. Um, in terms of regulation coming out, I think there's a fear on behalf of the industry that there's been a lot of enforcement action or there's been a lot of agencies increasing their their staffing for enforcement without first putting forward regulatory clarity. And from the perspective of industry, good regulation is good and bad regulation is bad. Good regulation lays the foundation for bigger institutions to come into the space, which they can't if they feel it's too risky. Um, but bad regulation stifles growth by, you know, disabling entrepreneurs from creating um, because they're too afraid of enforcement. And so I think the, the biggest critique is that there's been a beefing up of enforcement capabilities without um, an actual increase in regulatory clarity. And so if I, if I had any kind of response to this, it would be more specifics, more clarity. Yeah. Did the tone change over the time that the reports were, were written? And Dante, it feels like when it was when the White House executive order came out, going into it, there was a lot of concern from the industry of what is this going to say? What is it going to be? And then when what it was, was we should do some research, we should write reports. And as the crypto industry, we're like, yes, like, <laughs> this is what we want to do. Like, let's look into it. Let's get in the details. Let's learn. Uh, and so it seemed very optimistic when it was announced in how many reports mm -hmm. and kind of who was writing them. But then Terra happened, UST happened. Like, so have you seen the tone change between when it was announced and when the reports came in? And you think that that event drove a lot of the, the negative perceptions and focused more on risk uh, when the reports came out? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I'm a bit of an optimist, generally speaking, but I, as you know, Kai, track these developments uh, very, very closely and very carefully. And I think net-net, we should look at it positively overall, irrespective of the content of some of the reports, which is heavy on risk, light on opportunity. Um, 
the content uh, suffers from, I think, just the, the the time in which it was written, which was marked by the Terra collapse, marked by, you know, crypto tarp is the way I describe this phase where a lot of companies and projects faced liquidity problems, they faced um, revenue problems, and, and in many cases, but for the interventions of individual companies or individuals, many of them may have failed or many more of them may have failed. And so you could feel like that was part of what drove at least some of the tone. But what we should look at pretty optimistically here is that, you know, the United States and the White House executive order was echoed in California with Governor Newsom's executive order on digital assets, and then represents a part of a bigger trend around the world in which you see this whole of government approach to Web3 and digital assets is being normalized. In some respects, uh, the United States has to catch up with Europe. We, the jury is out of whether or not the European framework, the markets and crypto assets framework, uh, is going to be good in the long run or not, but nonetheless represents this idea that Web3 has arrived. It is going to enjoy increasing legal and regulatory certainty in all of the major jurisdictions around the world. And that, you know, the United States is not the country to um, take the short bet on. Better to get it right than to get it fast. And candidly, I think that's the conclusion of these reports is that there's more studies due, there's more work to be done. Um, but this is also still the country that has attracted the, the, the biggest depth of entrepreneurialism and capital and development, uh, despite the regulatory uncertainty we're still building pretty pretty extremely in the United States. One one thing that kind of came across from this sets of reports is that, you know, I was really young at the time, but I know the internet was regulated into existence, right? And and, and we're talking about Web 1, and now we're talking about Web 3. So, um, Amanda, do you see that this as the first milestone on a much longer journey, as Dante was saying, of things coming into place and regulating crypto as an industry into its formal existence? Or because this is now so overly financialized, whereas in the internet, the original internet wasn't, we're going to have to rush some of these things to kind of avoid customer, uh, customer and retail exposure uh, that we didn't have back in the day when the internet emerged. What's, what's, your, what's your perception of how things are going to transpire, given that, you know, as, an, as a formal industry, we will require regulation anyway? Well, um, it, it, it depends who we is in that statement. Um, I'm not a part of government. I'm not a regulator. Um, and I think there's just so much demand for um, crypto assets and for items that exist on blockchains, whether they're financialized or not. I, I think, you know, massive amounts of non-accredited investors want to buy things like Bitcoin and ETH, want to buy tokens that are related to various projects. Um, want to participate in DeFi, and then want to own pieces of internet-ownable property in NFT form. Um, some of them will be art, collectibles, memberships of all sort, and there's, there's massive um, individual interest in doing that. Um, individuals are becoming educated about Web3, learning how to custody their own value in many cases in self-sovereign wallets, but also occasionally becoming victims of scams. Um, whether those are projects that have marketed themselves um, inaccurately uh, or, or illegally, or whether those are um, protocols with bad smart contracts that haven't been audited properly, or whether it's simply um, scam or fake links that end up robbing wallets. And so um, obviously as someone in the industry, I would like the industry to have more good stuff and less bad stuff because then it gets a reputation with consumers 
of um, of being interesting and fulfilling and um, you know not having bad things happen. So that's very much in my interest. Um, I think uh, I, I think it, the industry is also able to self-regulate, able to learn, um, able to um, develop better. Um, you know, individual resilient processes for custodying your own value, for understanding whether smart contract code's been diligenced. Um, so, so I think it's going to be a mix. Um, and I just want to see regulation not come so swiftly and in such a kind of blanket context that it shuts down all of this demand for these kinds of objects. From a, from a timing perspective, it felt like you know, a lot of people were waiting for these reports to come in. So it's kind of like pencils down, like, let's not do, let's, let's wait to see what the reports say. Now that the reports are in, you know, Dante, do you, do you expect to see, you know, uh, other regulators and, and agencies that, you know, you know, get more active or mm. is it now Congress's <clears throat> turn? Like, how do we think about, you know, what happens next as, yeah. you know, this phase completes? Yeah, well, I think all eyes, frankly, are on the people's house, right? In the United States, you have to keep your eyes on Capitol Hill these days. Um, uh, there are two bills. Uh, one is public, the other is not, at least not yet, um, that could capture, I think, big, big corners of the digital assets market and create that kind of puff of white smoke that perhaps people were wrongly waiting for from the White House executive orders, um, but that they could very well see from Congress. So we have a bill in the Senate Agricultural Committee that enjoys bipartisan support uh, and looks at digital commodities pretty comprehensively, which to Amanda's point is the trading behavior of a lot of digital assets in circulation uh, would reflect digital commodities. And already you have in the CFTC here in the US, the regulator of record of the big preponderance of, of the industry and a lot of the value that is traded in the industry would fall under the CFTC's jurisdiction. That bill ostensibly would, would create those swim lanes and that clarity so that there's a regulator of record over, uh, over um, digital commodities. The second bill is not yet public, but, but you know, there's been some reporting of it, um, is the response to the president's working group on financial markets, which called for urgency uh, for Congress to act on looking at payment stable coins and looking at you know, potential systemic risks and spillovers. On the one hand, the, the PWG, the President's Working Group, can feel vindicated that they, quote unquote, got it right in calling that, you know, there may be some potential risks in the crypto markets. On the other hand, you know, stable instruments like USDC and the innovations we've been developing at Circle have demonstrated that a rules-based free market is the best option we have without the need of a public bailout. Um, but so nonetheless, I think those two bills, uh, one on payment stable coins in the House Financial Services Committee, and one in the Senate on uh, digital commodities can really move the needle in some pretty big ways in the United States so that people aren't sitting there guessing, is my project subject to obscure 1930s financial laws or do I in fact enjoy a national regulator of record? Because the gap, I think, um, uh, Kai, is we're in this fintech constitutional crisis in the United States. That's the problem. The problem is not can we regulate the industry? The problem is we're trying to do so in this patchwork quilt and that's the enemy of the type of certainty that consumers, markets, and regulators all want. Um, and frankly, a lot of the builders and investors in crypto care for as well. Nice. Yeah. We keep talking about regulatory integration. And one of the things I wish to see in the future is regulated, regulators coming in on chain because uh, old frameworks do not apply to new paradigms. And decentralization is a massively new paradigm that needs to be tackled in the right way as well. 
we're gonna wrap up this one. There, we could do a whole episode on this uh, report. <laughs> a, I'm gonna hand lot, it over to you. Yeah, a lot to the, discuss. But for the for the next story, uh, Korean crypto bank inks deal to offer Ethereum staking to investors. And so Delio Bank, I believe it's pronounced, is South Korea's largest virtual asset service provider. They've teamed up with blockchain infrastructure firm uh, Blockdaemon to offer the service to retail users. And so this is coming off the back of a successful merge a few weeks ago. Now that we've seen Ethereum you know, shift to, to proof of stake, uh, Amanda, what, what do you make of this? Do you think that staking will become this, you know, normalized mainstream retail financial product that you know consumers will look to access through neo banks and banks and you know what does it mean for financial institutions to to look at you know this space yeah absolutely and and i i do think it will become that it's uh it's a source of yield that should be considered by investors and traders alongside other sources of yield um along with uh risk profile so U.S. government bond yields, 10-year government bonds are at something like 3.8% yield. Um, the, the market was down in the U.S. this year, so the, the index funds are down. Where do you get that 5% yield, right? Um, Ethereum staking gives you about 5% yield. And so that's a really attractive number considering how um, secure Ethereum staking is. Um, and then you add on um, MEV to that and get seven, eight percent yield. That's a really attractive yield and risk profile. And so I'm not surprised at all that banks and other kinds of um, consumer institutions would would begin to offer it, just like any other um, asset with that um, risk reward profile. And, and Marisa, what do you think it takes for this to go mainstream? Of you know infrastructure on one hand, you know we've seen Block Damon you know grow very quickly. Yeah, you know, my understanding is offering mostly you know services to you know hedge funds and, and traders that are holding these assets. Like, what do you think it will take for other more mainstream financial institutions to to get in this space from an infrastructure perspective? I uh, I really like the concept of home staking. Uh, so, listeners, if you haven't yet learned what the merge is, what staking is, we have a very nice video on the Eleven FS YouTube channel where I explain you know, what the merge is and what staking does. Uh, but in a nutshell, staking is the fact that you're activating a validator on the proof of stake network, which is what Ethereum is now. And the network, as it processes transactions, once your node or validator is chosen, you get rewarded with the transactional fees of that of those transactions uh, in return to you validating those transactions. That's the return we're seeing on proof of stake uh, blockchains. But the one concept that I think is going to permeate this and then give Ethereum's the true decentralization it's capable of now, it's home staking. So I'm waiting for a, a domestic application or hardware where it's just a computer connected to the, to the internet, maybe with a, a hardware wallet connected to it, where it's, uh, it's not plug and play, it's plug, plug and stake. Like for, for moms and dads everywhere in the world to be supporting the uh, proof of stake uh, network and earning a reward for doing that work on behalf of the community. I think that's the ability to do that now after the merge is in place. And I hope that banks and other financial institutions come to terms like, okay, the more secure this is, the better it is for us to use this as the 
financial infrastructure uh, of the new financial world. So we need to encourage more people to come in and stake and validate the network for us as, as a global infrastructure. So I'm hoping that you know some entrepreneur who is very savvy with hardware and understands the implications of doing that uh, could provide for home stakers uh, a sort of tool to do that in a very easy manner. Uh, if it's just uh, exchanging my uh, USB hardware wallet, you know, once it gets loaded up, or if I, I load less than, say, 32 uh, ETH, that is the minimum now to activate a validator, it can pull in uh, with other um, home stakers as well to validate on a 32 uh, ETH pull. That would, be, that would be very interesting to see and probably the best way for us to achieve, uh, you know, the ultimate decentralization uh, possible, I guess. And then Dante, what, what impact has the merge had in the policy conversations that, that you're in? Is there a recognition and excitement about how successful the transition was, you know, how it's becoming, you know, less you know, energy intensive? You know, has that really sunk in yet? And, and what do regulators and policymakers think of staking? Yeah, no, no. First of all, I think the merge, I actually have an article coming out about it because I think it deserves more observation for what it is. Uh, and it was genuinely a, a feat of human ingenuity organized on the internet. And, and the ability to go from a computationally intense uh, algorithmic sort of validation standard and proof of work to proof of stake, it, it represents exactly the point of open financial market infrastructure that's non-proprietary, right? That that who is coming to rescue a bank or a payments company or a traditional financial services firm uh, from technology obsolescence if the technology itself is is uh, proprietary and closed? And so you saw this kind of community of purpose organized around the Ethereum merge. Um, and on the one hand, it could have been for the older listeners like Y2K. <laughs> on the other hand, uh, to the newer listeners, candidly, it was a non-event. Uh, and, and it went... Smoothly, as you know, Circle and USDC were the largest uh, stablecoin on the Ethereum network. So all eyes were on the prize on this one um, as a company. And so our team and engineers and developers and others were keeping a very close eye on this upgrade. But I think the fact that you have constantly upgradable open financial infrastructure is absolutely a breakthrough. Uh, and that, for me, has been, I think, one of the points I've been trying to drive for a long time and, and candidly Circle as well in the policy conversation, which is that... Um, these innovations are not competing with the traditional financial system. They're completing unfinished work in it. The concept of, of yield, the concept of streaming payments, the concept of, of uh, everything Mauricio was just describing and Amanda was describing a moment ago of, you know, pulling people into the perimeter uh, of new types of financial products and payments. But for, the, but for the fact that the tech stack itself is open, it wouldn't be possible using traditional methods. And, and that's the point of all of these innovations. So I think the merge, keep an eye out on the press. I've got a piece coming out soon on it, but um, I think the merge deserves a lot more study. The only other point I would say, and it goes back to the White House point <laughs> we just talked about, is when people talk about blockchains, they still are talking about Gen 1, right? And and you know the climate, the climate change footprint, the carbon footprint, we're describing it as if it was unimproving infrastructure. Imagine if we had done the same thing with the internet and stopped developing the internet because we didn't like dial-up and we didn't like the worldwide wait phase. 
it would have been a very bad outcome for society. So I think Web3 and blockchain are under the same kind of challenge. And the Ethereum merge is an example that uh, when done right, the community could rally and, and, and make these big transitions possible. Yeah, it, it, it's such an interesting proof point of well of just, you know, how in, how quickly this space moves and how difficult it, it is for people who aren't in it full time to stay on top of it. You know, I still get questions where like, what about the energy use? You'd be like, well, actually, two weeks ago, like, <laughs> it completely changed. And it's just like being able to stay on top of these updates is is a challenge, you know, for people not in it all the all the time. And Amanda, what do you think about like some of the confusion around the concept and the term staking? Like, I see the word staking applied to everything. Like there, there are platforms that you're actually you know, lending to them and they call it staking. There's staking where you're just locking up funds, but the funds aren't actually validating any transactions. And then there's staking where you're operating a node that's validating transactions. Like, how, do you think that staking is going to be this, the term itself is descriptive enough and people will be able to determine what is what is staking that has a different level of risk and opportunity versus another? How do you think about explaining that to mainstream consumers? Yeah, sure. And so Serotonin's the first and largest Web3 marketing firm. So we have a lot of clients that are that have staking as part of their system. Um, there, there are so many different words in our in our ecosystem with many different meanings or with new contextual meanings. Words like community, um, and so you know, in, in, in terms of staking. There are so many definitions across the ecosystem. What they have in common tends to be, okay, you put your crypto asset in some kind of locked up pool and it does something there. You have have some reason to have it be there. Maybe it's validating transactions. Maybe you're getting rewards. um, And there's usually some time period that has to be locked up. And there are often some kind of conditions where, okay, if you do X malicious thing, maybe then you lose it. And so perhaps it's an anchor that incentivizes behavior. But they do all have enough in common, which is you're putting your tokens in a pool for some kind of reason. There's some kind of risk of losing it. Sometimes that's correlated with behavior and there's some kind of upside of having your tokens be in there. So I think there's enough consistency in terms of the use of the term that the, the, the word is just high level, right? And I think um, there used to just be tokens, right? Like I started working on the Ethereum project in, 20, in 2015 and tokenization, the ERC-20 token standard was a new concept and people would just say tokens. And then eventually we started saying security tokens, utility tokens, um, and now access tokens, membership tokens. Um, Now there are so many different words. I think we're going to just see the same thing with staking, where this concept emerged out of the technology. Then we're going to get really specific about different ways it works. Yeah, even just saying the word tokens to to anyone in the payment industry, it's like we were talking about tokens 15 years ago. And we're like, wait, what, what, what type of token? So there's always multiple meanings here. Uh, totally. So we're going to wrap it now and uh, take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. 
This year, 11FS are heading to Vegas for Money 2020. Come and see us on stand K2310, where our Pulse team will be ready to chat all things UX and show you the very best user journeys from around the world of FS. That's not all. Also, we'll be recording two live episodes of Fintech Insider, where you can come and watch and get a bit of a peek behind the mics. It all kicks off on the 23rd of October. See you in Vegas. Welcome back. For the second half of the show, we're starting off with the Starbucks news. So Starbucks tapped Polygon for its Starbucks Odyssey Web3 experience. So from the Polygon blog, they mentioned that Starbucks is working with Polygon to provide the blockchain technology to build its recently announced Web3 experience, Starbucks Odyssey. This new Web3-powered experience will allow Starbucks rewards loyalty program members and Starbucks employees in the United States to earn and purchase digital collectible stamps in the form of NFTs. From September 12, customers and partners could join a waitlist to receive access to the Starbucks Odyssey experience. I, for one, when I started uh, with Enterprise Blockchain back in 2017, loyalty was one of the first use cases that we saw having uh, global implementations, and obviously because they were self-contained, private permission blockchains that kind of ended up never going anywhere. Now, we're talking about Polygon, which is an Ethereum Layer 2 uh, blockchain, which is one of the scalability solutions for Ethereum, and they're doing a killing in many fronts, and loyalty is just another one. And Starbucks probably has one of the most active loyalty programs in the world. So, Kai, is this the right play for Starbucks at this stage? And how do you think they're going to deal with the backlash of adopting, again, a blockchain for doing something that originally they did without? I, I think it's a it's a big signal to the market in that Starbucks has been such a leader in mobile payments and loyalty for such a long time. Uh, I think... It's interesting to note that they are building this in a way that that abstracts away, you know, the blockchain and and the wallet. Um, they're not even really calling it NFTs to the consumer. They're they're calling them stamps or, or collectibles. And I think that's going to become you know, more and more common. Where this will just be a different backend technology that can provide interesting properties to build you know loyalty experiences on top of. Uh, one thing that I'm really curious to see is. To me, one of the, the, the biggest areas of value of, of building a tokenized loyalty program and a loyalty program on chain is to have more of an ecosystem that third parties can interact with those assets as well. And so it, it used to be a loyalty program. It was just the company offering it, creating what the benefits were you know, for the members versus now, could you have any company say, you know, I want to provide some benefit for someone who's a you know, frequent you know, Starbucks customer? And so how do you balance as a large corporation with a you know, really loved and respected brand the openness that blockchains provide to create these opportunities to collaborate with others while still protecting your brand from being used in, in a way that you don't want it to? And so I think that's going to be one of the more interesting areas when these loyalty programs aren't just single player, one brand by one brand. They're going to be interlocking you know, collaborations between many brands that can all happen because the loyalty programs run on the same you know, tech stack. And so I think that's that's what I'm looking to, to see. 
Nice. And Dante, uh, you have experience, obviously, with Circle uh, going into uh, Polygon. They have been uh, working towards becoming carbon neutral. Do you think that that's one of the factors that maybe Starbucks uh, took into account by bringing uh, for bringing Polygon into the fold? And how do you think that this partnership will evolve in terms of bringing more ESG capabilities to the space? Are you guys looking into that as well as part of the circle work? Yeah, well, no, first of all, it's a fascinating case. And I think, um, you know, in many cases, these loyalty programs are like um, hidden, unregulated financial institutions hiding in plain sight. And so I do think there's a really powerful acknowledgement in Starbucks of something that should be more generalizable in industry. If you think about all of your airline miles, for two years, the planet was uh, locked down and in quarantine all over the world. Wouldn't it have been nice if your airline mile accrual could have been instantly convertible through these types of open networks into a form of value that was usable by you uh, in, in sort of powering the economy. So I think there's some really powerful implications here. The test is not to put a wrapper around a loyalty program, then masquerading as a blockchain infrastructure. The real test is, can you break free of the walled garden problem and, and, and then create open networks where the value can accrue to you, the individual? And it's sort of the same case that I always ask philosophically in banking, Mauricio, which is that, is it really your money if you have to ask permission to spend it and you have to pay someone to hold it for you? And that that's the kind of market correction that digital assets represents, is that it is in fact yours. And again, I think the same holds true with loyalty point accrual and, and how interoperable they may become over time with the, the philosophy of Web3, it, which is to tear down the walls. Um, but I do think the fact, again, that you have this kind of infrastructure in Polygon being used by, by this enormous company with so much brand equity at stake tells you that we've arrived, right? From a technological vantage point, uh, the infrastructure is there. A lot of these late generation blockchains have solved for transaction throughput issues. They've solved for computational intensity and the carbon footprint issues. And they're not alone. There's the competition, you know, breaking the ranks of one blockchain to rule them all. You see a lot of competition uh, in the in the infrastructure side of the equation, which is now starting to be adopted by traditional uh, major companies. Very exciting, very exciting project. Yeah. And Amanda, um, as, as Dante said, I mean, there's a lot of brand equity. What do you think that this is going to make for the rest of the loyalty programs? Do you think that this is kind of that huge trendsetter that everyone now is going to go after? Are, you know what's what's the take for that portion of the industry and would this also add say to brands that don't have a loyalty program say hey maybe i should have one now that's kind of easy to kind of implement and as kai said maybe i'll just uh, sell stuff for starbucks members i don't know <laughs> yeah absolutely so at serotonin we have a large um what we call a web3 transformation practice where we work with a lot of these big traditional and Web2 brands, helping them get into Web3 for the first time. Um, so strategy and then execution once it turns into a, a project. And so we get to see a lot of this stuff before it comes out. And let me just tell you, there are so many things that look like this Starbucks program coming out from other major brands, not just loyalty, but also membership. Membership is a really huge one for hotel groups, clubs, restaurants. Um, and where I think we're going is 
wherever there's value, what Web3 lets you do is put a cell wall around that type of value to bring it into fungibility and exchange with other types of value. So sometimes there's value in a community, there's value in a CRM, there's value in um, re-engaging and returning customers. And what we're doing is just using Web3 as um, a substrate, as an infrastructure, as a set of tools um, in order to capture those kinds of value and bring them into um, tradability with other types of value. And so memberships are that, rewards points are that. And the cool thing about that is that Starbucks or another similar brand, um, it's not about the crypto markets. When I go to buy my Starbucks cup of coffee or when I go to buy my sneakers or when I go to do the equivalent of that in the metaverse, when I'm buying sneakers for my avatar in the metaverse or when I'm doing something in Web3 around my Starbucks loyalty points, it's not about the crypto markets. And so what we're seeing is the rise of non-correlated assets coming on chain, like these loyalty and membership programs that really, the, the, the people that hold them aren't speculators. They're not, they're not seeing them as investments primarily. They're seeing them for their utility. And the fact that we even say the, the word utility is kind of ridiculous. Like, of course, everything should have a utility. <laughs> and, and, and the fact that you can have like a Web3 object that may or may not have anything you can do with it. I think that's going to become a thing of the past. I think we're also going to stop using NFT and Web3 terminology. This is going to become so ubiquitous. It's just a membership program. It's just a loyalty program. Um, Serotonin's product spin out Mojito, did a big launch with the Milwaukee Bucks um, that offered a free claimable NFT to uh, people that had already participated in their existing loyalty programs. It was called a digital membership. People loved it. Um, it was fully, you know, Web3 native, um, but that wasn't how it needed to be packaged. The same way we don't call a company an internet company today, we're not going to be calling these things Web3 startups or NFTs tomorrow. Um, and so I think we're just seeing the rise of those uncor uncorrelated assets, rise of utility, and the um, ubiquity to obfuscation of Web3 lingo. I, I love that. And uh, I hope that, you know, in a few years time, we don't have to talk about blockchains or tokens or NFTs, because it's just just so commonplace that we just that's just how we do things. So yeah, more power of that. So we're going to wrap up now. I'm going to hand it over to you, Kai, for our honorable mentions. Yeah. So in this part of the show, we want to quickly round up uh, some of the other stories from the month that we didn't have time to cover. Uh, Lugano stakes claim to become cryptocurrency capital of Europe. So this is the southern Swiss city of Lugano has stepped up you know, cryptocurrency use. It's developing new infrastructure to adopt Bitcoin, uh, Tether, and its own LVGA token. So Lugano residents will be able to use cryptocurrencies to pay their taxes and to pay local businesses. Uh, really interesting to see individual cities and you know, local representatives you know, really leaning into crypto as as a way to to differentiate and kind of sell their their city as a unique place, and I'm sure we'll see many more experiments like this you know, all over the world. Yeah, well, move then to South Korea that issued an arrest warrant for the Terra founder Do Kwon. So the founder of Terraform Labs, Do Kwon, is now facing a warrant of arrest from South Korean authorities. A court located in Seoul reportedly issued a warrant of arrest for Do Kwon and five other people who are all currently located in Singapore. According to the prosecutor's office in South Korea, the Terra founder is facing allegations 
of violating the country's capital markets law. So we all know what happened uh, with Terra. Uh, we we just spoke briefly about this, uh, you know, when we, we talked about the uh, U.S. regulation. Um, this this is strange because we haven't seen this form of uh, action being uh, pursued uh, outside of the U.S. Right. So this is new. This is uh, unique, and I'm hoping that we as an industry. Uh, start to pay more attention to these types of situations where if we're playing with the lack of clarity in regulation and we're pulling people from like investors from retail and exposing them to risks that they don't understand, well, we should be liable as an industry. And I think it's interesting to see uh, from South Korea such an enforcement uh, in something that really ultimately caused the death of a few people, right? In, back in, in May, June, July. So, I think it's uh, it's it's a cautionary tale for us as an industry, and we can all do better. So I'm hoping this serves as a lesson across the board, and I hope that this comes to a, uh, uh, a justified and fixed ending to all involved. And then for the last story, NFT creator Doodles announced that it has raised $54 million at over a $700 million valuation led by 776 with uh, participation from Accrue Capital and FTX Ventures. Doodles has been doing some really cool stuff with Shopify around token-gated commerce. You know, some of the events that they've thrown, you know, ways that you know you get access to certain parts of the event if you own the NFT. So really interesting to see the the experimentation around that community. And we're going into our last segment of today's show with the tweet of the week. We wanted to give a shout out to the tweet of the week, which comes from a friend of the show, Anna Herrera from Bloomberg. Her handle is at Anna with double N, Herrera, double R-E-R-A. And she tweeted, the SEC charged Kim Kardashian for unlawfully touting crypto security, followed up by a screenshot from the terminal, showing that Kim Kardashian will have to pay $1.26 million over allegations that she broke the U.S. rules by touting a crypto token without disclosing that she was paid for the promotion. So influencers everywhere, stop shilling your bags and you know, give clarity to what you're doing. This is not new. You know, we don't need more of that in the industry. And I'm happy that these things are uh, coming uh, to surface because uh, we need, I mean, again, we need to be serious. If we're not the adults in the room, someone else will. So we better, you know, strengthen that out. That wraps up this week's news show. Just as a quick reminder to let you know that the views of our panels are their own and not necessarily the opinions of the companies that they're representing. Thank you so much to all our guests. And where can people find more about you, Amanda? Amanda.eth on Twitter, um, at Amanda Cassett, C-A-S-S-A-T-T. And also check out serotonin.co, which is our main website. We're uh, the largest and first Web3 marketing firm and product studio. Our product spinouts, Mojito, mojito.xyz, leading NFT e-commerce infrastructure platform powering Sotheby's, CIA, and more. And our latest, Franklin, hellofranklin.co, uh, Web3 crypto native payroll. Thank you. Dante, where can people find more about you? Awesome. Yep. <clears throat> Likewise, uh, available on Twitter and wherever else there's an inter internet connection on the planet at uh, Didis Parte. 
And of course, Circle at Circle.com and USDC, the world's, uh, I would argue, most trusted dollar digital currency available um, very widely around the world and increasingly building exactly what Amanda described, that bridge between digital use cases and real world use cases. So um, thanks for having me on, Mauricio, Kai. It was great uh, sharing a conversation with both of you and with Amanda. Thank you, Dante. Kai, where can people find you online? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And as for me, I'm available on Twitter at 0xMauricio, on LinkedIn, Mauricio Magaldi, and of course, 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.